On Sunday night, Moonlight shocked America by defeating heavily favored Best Picture competitor La La Land. It won for one simple reason. Those in Hollywood decided that intersectionality should defeat Hollywood self-aggrandizement this year. Here's the thing about Moonlight. It's not a very good movie. It's interesting in the way that all character studies are kind of interesting. It's a look at a place and at a time and at a person, but it doesn't truly uplift or soar or actually do much of anything. It won because the Academy voters preferred not to hear another year of griping about hashtag Oscars so white and because those same voters could feel good about supposedly slapping Donald Trump in the face with diversity. It's no coincidence that an Oscars ceremony that opened with Kimmel tweeting president, tweaking President Trump, remember last year when it seemed like the Oscars was racist, ended with the Academy giving the Best Picture Oscar to broke back inner city Miami. This isn't to say there can't be a great movie made about a black gay coming-of-age story. There can, but this wasn't it. This isn't the first time the Academy has bowed to political correctness rather than quality, of course, and this year's Oscar battle featured two battling Hollywood priorities, honoring itself and honoring the most politically correct picture of the year. In recent years, this battle has become pretty much the entirety of the Best Picture race. In 2014, Hollywood rewarded its own importance with Birdman instead of the far superior Whiplash or American Sniper. In 2013, Hollywood rewarded the rather forgettable 12 Years a Slave instead of Gravity or Dallas Buyers Club. In 2012, Hollywood gave an Oscar to Argo. Yay, Hollywood does foreign policy! Instead of Zero Dark Thirty or Lincoln. In 2005, Hollywood had its biggest PC off in a Best Picture fight between Brokeback Mountain, Crash, and Munich. Capote was actually a better picture than all of those three. One of the reasons Hollywood no longer rakes in the big bucks other than on tentpole features is that it sees only the profound movies as those that center on intersectional concerns, upholding the virtue of identity politics or the importance of art itself, rather than movies that tell people stories that they want to see. La La Land is a far better, more watchable movie than Moonlight, but there were at least three other movies that were better than either this year. Hell or High Water, Arrival, and Hacksaw Ridge, and all three were nominated. That doesn't include what I thought was the most entertaining flick of the year, Ten Cloverfield Lane. Unfortunately for those pictures, they weren't concerned with black gay children or the wonders of Hollywood. If somebody ever makes a movie about a half-black, half-Native American bisexual transgender trying to make his or her way in Hollywood, you can hand them the Oscar right now. And this is how you know Hollywood is dying. Instead of telling particular stories with general appeal, Hollywood tells stories that appeal only to themselves. They reassure themselves of their importance every single year, either by making movies telling them how important they are, or by making movies trying to show how important they are by taking on the issue of the day in after-school special fashion. It doesn't make for good entertainment, which is why TV, which actually tells stories rather than getting up hung up on the self-important nonsense of the movie industry, now outranks the movie industry in terms of quality. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So we will talk everything Oscars in just a minute. We will also be talking about the Democrats picking a new leader and what you need to know about Tom Perez, that new leader. But first, we have to say thank you to our sponsors over at My Patriot Supply. So if you're concerned about the failure of local government to help you in time of need, if you're concerned about an economic downturn, if you're concerned about a natural disaster, you know, the levees breaking like they did in Northern California or New Orleans, or you're worried about just a natural disaster of any sort, a tornado, and you need to make sure that you are safe and secure and that you have what you need for your family, you need to talk to my friends at My Patriot Supply. They have a four-week emergency food supply for only 99 bucks, which is a pretty solid price for four weeks of emergency food supply. It's something you buy once and then you never really have to buy again. These things last for 25 years. You order now at 888-803-1413, 888-803-1413, or you can go online to preparewithben.com. That's breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 28 days. So in case the government can't help you or your local community can't help you. You're prepared, and for 99 bucks, you never have to worry about it again. It stays fresh again for up to 25 years. It's only 99 bucks plus free shipping, limit two per caller, because 
you don't really have to worry about it beyond that. 888-803-1413 at preparewithben.com. Again, if you're truly concerned, you should be, about making sure your family has enough food to eat if a crisis hits, whether it's an economic crisis or a natural disaster. You talk to my friends over at My Patriot Supply. Living in California, this is one of the companies that we turn to with regard to, to helping out friends and family. And given the fact that, that earthquakes are a real possibility out here and everywhere across the country, there is the possibility of natural disaster. You need to talk to my friends over at My Patriot Supply, 888-803-1413, 888-803-1413. Preparewithben.com is the place to go online to get your My Patriot Supply four-week supply of emergency food. Okay, so we can jump right into the Oscars. So the big winner at the Oscars last night was not Moonlight. The big winner at the Oscars last night was Donald Trump. That was the big winner at the Oscars last night because Donald Trump basically could sit there and watch Hollywood make a mockery of itself. Sally Cohn, one of my favorite people on the left of MSNBC and CNN fan, you remember her, hands up, don't shoot. Sally Cohn tweeted out right before the Oscars that she hoped every single speech was political. To which I tweeted, so does, so does every Republican in the country. We all want every speech to be political because the more political these speeches are, the better off Republicans are because watching all of these, all of these sort of comforted, rich, limousine liberal socialists ripping on America is really something that off-puts a lot of voters, and people react to that by voting for people on the Republican side of the aisle. Hollywood has never driven people into the arms of the Democrats, except through kind of their subtle cultural moments, but they don't drive people into the arms of the Democrats by just shouting about how terrible Republicans are. This is something that Hollywood gets wrong. The stuff that Hollywood is good at creating story, creating character, that stuff can help convince people that Democrats are right. But it doesn't convince people Democrats are right when Marlon Brando sends up Sachin Littlefeather at the Oscars in 1973, a Native American spokeswoman, to pick up his award and rant and rave about how America's means to the Native Americans. Nobody voted Democrat because of that. And nobody voted Democrat in 2003 because Michael Moore got up at the Oscars and talked about the fictional president, George W. Bush, getting us into a fictional war. Hollywood people think that we want to hear what they have to say. We don't. We want to hear the stories they have to tell, but we don't actually want to hear the things they have to say because the things they have to say are generally stupid. They don't know anything about politics, so why in the world would we listen to them when it comes to politics? But again, Hollywood doesn't know that, so instead what Hollywood does is they think that we're watching because we want to hear their opinions on politics. So Jimmy Kimmel just couldn't help himself. He opened up with a bunch of jokes about Trump. Here were just a few of them. It's so easy to reach out and heal. And I want to say, maybe this is not... A popular thing to say, but I want to say thank you to President Trump. I mean, remember last year when it seemed like the Oscars were racist? <laughs> Braveheart in this room, and he's not going to unite us either. Okay? Meryl, stand up if you would. Everybody, please join me in giving Meryl Streep a totally undeserved round of applause, will you? Standing ovation for Meryl Streep. Because she's Meryl Streep. Like the Beyonce of actresses. The highly overrated Meryl Streep, everyone. She actually is overrated. <laughs> she hasn't been good for 30 years. And it was it was joke after joke about Donald Trump and how terrible Trump was. And look how wonderful we are. And we love Meryl Streep. And Meryl Streep's the best because she made fun of Donald Trump that one time at some ceremony. And yeah, we love her. And sure, she was in a really crappy movie, Florence Foster Jenkins, that nobody ever saw. But it doesn't matter because Meryl Streep, guys. Meryl Streep. So, yeah, he does all of these jokes in a row about Donald Trump, and we're all supposed to sit there and be like, yeah, this is great, yeah. The real reaction is, can you guys get over yourselves, please? Really, this is the best that you can do? These are your best jokes about Donald Trump calling him racist and calling presumably the people who voted for him racist? And that's a great way to alienate an audience that's already not watching any of your Best Picture nominees. Nothing that was nominated for Best Picture this year did well at the box office. I think the only exception uh, as far as a movie that did well at the box office uh, was Arrival. 
Uh, I'm not aware of any other movie that was nominated for Best Picture this year that did over $100 million in business. Did Arrival end up doing $100 million in business? If it did, it was real close. So it was, it, was, it, was not, it was not you know a blockbuster blow out of the ballpark. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it. But all of the movies that were nominated this year, again, were seen by pretty much the people in this particular room. And then it didn't stop there. The self-aggrandizement of Hollywood is just unending. Viola Davis won Best Supporting Actress for her role in Suicide Squad. Um, oh, no, 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 sorry. It was, it was, no, not for Suicide Squad. It was, it was for her role in, uh, what was the name of that movie? Fences, Fences. Sorry, sorry, I got that wrong. Um, but Viola Davis, who was, I thought she was fantastic in Suicide Squad. That's why I thought that she had to win. So was that guy who, like, shot fire from his fingers and everything. Anyway, Viola Davis, she gets up and she gives this speech. I became an artist, and thank God I did because we are the only profession that celebrates what it means to live a life. We're the only profession? The only one that celebrates what it means to live a life? So I was complaining before this, before this show started today that I'm kind of tired. You know the reason I'm kind of tired today? Because my wife has woken up the last several mornings at 4 o'clock in the morning to go into the hospital because she is a, she is a doctor and she's in her residency, which means she's getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to help people who in some cases are terminally ill. Clearly, the only profession that cares about living a life, that honors and celebrates living a life, is Hollywood. And it's so just, when Viola Davis says stuff like this, the fact is the vast majority of people in the United States work jobs where they're helping each other live better lives. But the artists have to pat themselves on the back. And this is what I was saying at the very beginning. The artists in Hollywood have to make themselves feel important one of two ways, because otherwise they're just reading lines for a living and wearing funny costumes. So they have to make themselves feel important one of two ways. One is they make important stories, right? We're going to make a story about a black gay ute living in Miami, right? That's going to be the thing that makes us important. Or alternatively, we have to talk about how important we are to everybody else. Now, I don't get on the air every morning and talk about how important my job is, right? I don't because it's either important to you or it's not important to you, but I don't have to preach how important what I do is to you because you'll decide for yourself. And I think that's true for the vast majority of people. When you call a plumber, he doesn't show up to your house and go, you know what? It's really important I fix your toilet today. I'm the guy who stands between you and crap running over your floor. And the plumber doesn't do that. He just goes and he fixes your stuff. But the artist community, because they understand that people sort of see them as frivolous, they feel the necessity to go out and talk about how special they are all the time. And this is not underestimating art. I love art. I love the movies. I love books. I love plays. I, I drew. I, I love the arts. I grew up in the arts. My dad was somebody in the arts. My mom is somebody in the arts. My sister is somebody in the arts. Two of my sisters are people in the arts. I love the arts. They're fantastic. You know, I write novels. I love the arts. But you know, art is wonderful. It's enriching. It can connect us to each other. But the utter arrogance, the true arrogance of saying the only profession that celebrate what it means to live a life I mean, that's really astounding. You know who else celebrates? Like, literally everyone does. You know who else celebrates what it means to live a life? Morticians, right? I mean, they, they, they actually put together the funeral arrangements where we remember people. There's also something that's really, it's really high-handed about saying that only the lives we choose to honor in Hollywood are the important ones. Right? She said in this speech, she said, there's one place all the people with the greatest potential are gathered, the graveyard. People ask me all the time, what kind of stories do you want to tell, Viola? And I say, exhume those bodies, exhume those stories, the stories of the people who dream big and never saw those dreams to fruition. And this kind of stuff goes over big in Hollywood. Ooh, the dreams. Ooh, the dreams. Okay, but the reality is the vast majority of people in the graveyard, their stories will never be told. But they are still remembered by their family. Their impact is still felt. Your life doesn't end when your life ends unless Vic- Viola Davis exhumes you and makes a story about you, you know, with it, that's not even real, right? Unless you, a fictional story about a person who never existed. 
No, what actually makes your life important is the friends and family around you and the way you impact the world in a better way and the way that you do honorable things for friends and neighbors and make the world a better place. That's how you make the world a better place. There are a lot of people who are remembered who are really evil. That doesn't make them more important. It doesn't make them more special. Being remembered by people who actually matter is, I think, more important than Viola Davis remembering you. And the idea that Hollywood is what confers value on people is really kind of gross. I mean, another element of this, and some people liked this, some people hated it, I didn't like it, was Jimmy Kimmel did this routine where he ushered in a bunch of people off the Hollywood tour bus directly into the Oscars, and here's what it looked like. Three, two, one. Mahershala! tourists who are on the Hollywood tour bus and they get to walk directly into the Oscars ceremony. Hi. Welcome to the Dolby Theater. This is the home of the Academy Awards, which are in fact happening right now. You are... What, what you, oh, I see Gary's your name? My name is Gary, Gary Allen Cole from Chicago. Where are you from? Oh, yes, you're sir. from Chicago. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know we're on TV, so you yes, don't need sir. to do that. I know, but I want to. <laughs> I want to. Let me give you a little tour. This is Nicole Kidman. Uh, Hi, Nicole. Fun fact, she was discovered in Redondo Beach at a Quiznos. It's Octavia. <laughs> this is Ryan Gosling. He's very handsome. Don't look into his eyes. Oh, that's nice, Ryan. Yes, yes, yes. We have uh, quite a few stars. Here's this Emma Stone and her brother, Spencer. Emma brought her brother. I feel like you're ignoring the white celebrities. Gary, is this your wife over here? What's your name? Vicky Vines. Okay, so are you here with Gary? See, the, the, the whole point of this little shtick here is to demonstrate just how special Hollywood is. It's so special that you can bring people in off the street, and then you can show them just how magical Hollywood I mean, look at all these important people, and look at all these ne'er-do-well rubes, you know, just walking out. What an honor for them. What an honor for them. We brought in the peasantry off the street, and now the peasants get to hobnob with the hoi polloi. They get to be among the stars. See, what would have been great, honestly, and what would have been funnier is if Kimmel had before this taken a bunch of the stars to visit people on their actual jobs. Right, had taken like you know, they make movies about these actual jobs. It would have been really funny to take Chris Pine, for example, in Hell or High Water, and take him to an oil derrick and like show him the people working in oil derrick, right? Or it'd be really funny to take Nicole Kidman and take her down to the local plumbers union and have her see what people are actually doing over there. Because that would have said, okay, look, we're Hollywood, and we know what we do is kind of frivolous, and it brings meaning to some people, but we also understand that what you do is really important. Instead. This whole event is all about how Hollywood is super-duper important to all of our lives. And look, it's fun. I enjoy the Oscars as much as the next guy, although I'll admit I did not watch a lot of it live last night. But at the same time, this sort of, this sort of I'm going to look down on you because we're from Hollywood and we're special, it manifests itself not just in terms of general attitude toward the, toward the people who live in the middle of the country. They're a bunch of rednecks and rubes. It also manifests itself in terms of politics. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But for that, you have to go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. You go over to dailywire.com. Eight bucks a month will make you a subscriber to dailywire.com. You can see the rest of the show live and check it out over there. You can also get an annual subscription right now at dailywire.com. You get a free copy of a piece of entertainment that's actually conservative, The Arroyo. If you watched it on Friday, we live streamed the film so you could actually see it. The Arroyo is a fictional film set on the southern border 
border about the crisis that's taking place on our southern border when one rancher's land is overrun by the drug cartels and he has to figure out what to do about it. If you want to get a free copy of that, free DVD of that, go to dailywire.com, become an annual subscriber. Otherwise, $8 a month makes you a subscriber. And we are. Later, you can listen to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. By the way, if you listen on iTunes, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so... To get back to this, once you have scorn for the normal, for, for kind of the normal American, once the normal American is seen as somebody who's just some rube who you take advantage of, then it's no wonder that you feel the necessity to speak politics to them. Because after all, they are the unwashed. They are the masses. They just don't know. And so you get situations like this one. Uh, you have a, an actor who, who wins an award, and he gets up and he cites the Quran at the Oscars. And, uh, and here's what it looked like. Adley Riyad Salah, the head of the White Helmets, is not able to join us tonight. We have a very short statement from him that we'd like to share with you. We're so grateful that this film has highlighted our work to the world. Our organization is guided by a verse from the Quran. To save one life is to save all of humanity. We have saved more than 82,000 Syrian lives. I invite anyone here who hears me to work on the side of life to stop the bloodshed in Syria and around the world. Okay, so this is actually an actor. This is the people who are reading a statement on behalf of Raid al-Salah, who's the head of the White Helmets. The White Helmets are a rescue organization who've gained a lot of fame because they've been uncovering people stuck in rubble in, in war-torn Syria. And the sharing of the verse from the Quran, this went nuts on social media. Look how beautiful it is that people are sharing verses from the Quran on social media. It's just wonderful. It's just, I didn't see that same sort of reaction if somebody gets up there and starts citing Leviticus. I don't see that same sort of reaction if somebody gets up there and starts citing the Bible. And it just demonstrates, again, that there's a sort of, there, there's a sort of exoticization of, of the other. There's the, the, these people in Syria, we have, to, we have to pat them on the head for what they're doing, and then we have to celebrate them citing the Quran. I mean, the fact is the people on the other side of that battle are also citing the Quran. And so the idea here is supposed to be that this demonstrates that, that the Hollywood is not Islamophobic, that they don't fear Islam. Look, cite the Quran, don't cite the Quran. It makes very little difference to me. But the celebration of the Quran as a document of freedom sort of ignores the fact that a huge preponderance, or at least a huge number of people who are ardent advocates for for the Quran are also ardent advocates for Quranic law, which is slightly less uh, slightly less helpful than it is for the white helmets. So again, am, am I happy that the white helmets are trying to use the Quran to to push goodness? Yeah, that's great. But for the West to celebrate the Quran as some sort of document of freedom, uh, that's a little bit over the top given the situation in the world currently. That wasn't the worst. The worst was this Iranian director who won Best, uh, best Foreign Film for, uh, for a film called The Salesman. And, uh, and, here's the, and he didn't show up. Instead, he sent some, some lady who I guess was the first Iranian space travel tourist or something to, uh, to get up and speak. And she reads a letter talking about how terrible America is. I will be reading a statement by Mr. Farhadi. It's a great honor to be receiving this valuable award for the second time. I would like to thank the members of the Academy, my crew in Iran, my producer Alexandre Malek-Gai, Cohen Media, Amazon, and my fellow nominees in the foreign film category. I'm sorry I'm not with you tonight. My absence is out of respect for the people of my country and those of other six nations whom have been disrespected by the inhumane law that bans entry of immigrants to the U.S. Just cheers, yay! Dividing the world... Thank you. 
Dividing the world into the us and our enemies categories creates fear, a deceitful justification for aggression and war. These wars prevent democracy and human rights in countries which have themselves been victims of aggression. Filmmakers can turn their cameras to capture shared human qualities and break stereotypes of various nationalities and religions. These, they create empathy between us and others, an empathy which we need today more than ever. Okay, so she Thank rips into the, the Trump administration, and she says that this travel ban is quite terrible, and it's just it's disrespectful, and it creates war. It's a deceitful justification for aggression and war. The foreign minister of Iran, a guy named Javad Zarif, he then tweets out, proud of cast and crew of the salesman for Oscar and stance against Muslim ban. Iranians have represented culture and civilization for millennia. This ignores a couple of facts, such as the fact that artists who, don't, who are not approved of by the regime immediately end up in prison in Iran. They imprison dissidents. They imprison artists on a regular basis. Iranian contributions to culture and civilization now come almost entirely from Iranians who live abroad and operate abroad. If you're working in Iran right now, there's a good shot that the Iranian regime is not a good shot. There's a 100 percent shot. The Iranian regime is sponsoring you, the same Iranian regime that is the lead global sponsor of terrorism, the same Iranian regime that calls for a genocide against the Jews. So to hear a resident of Iran who's coming from a country that's that's obviously in favor of what he's saying rip on the United States in this travel ban is really pretty disgusting. And watching these other Americans cheer this as though it's something grand and great for the Iranian government sponsored entry here, which is basically what this is apparently, to, to be ripping on the United States about terrorism and all the rest. Iran does not have a leg to stand on here, okay? Iran is not exactly a friend to minorities that live within its borders. Iran is not a friend to the Jews. Iran is the lead global sponsor of terrorism. And then you have some guy who is coming from Iran talking about how terrible America is for imposing restrictions on travel from people who are coming from, again, the leading state sponsor of terror on planet Earth. Hollywood shares this because Hollywood feels that it is above you. Hollywood believes that it is above you. You're just those rubes who are standing there gawking with the phones. You're not somebody who could actually have an opinion on politics, so they have to lecture you about politics, even if they're lecturing you by bringing up to stage somebody who's speaking on behalf of a terror sponsor state. Okay, that, you know, it was, it, again, I think all of this helps Trump because there is a backlash to a lot of this. And right now, politics is so reactionary that people don't react to the critiques of the Oscars by saying, here's what's true, here's what's false. They react by saying, here is Jimmy Kimmel ripping Trump again and tweeting at Trump, and it's just obnoxious. So I'll, I'd rather support Trump. In a battle between Trump and Hollywood, I'd pick Trump, right? This is how people think. People think, I, in a battle between Trump and X, I'll pick Trump. This is why Trump is able to succeed. If for just a second, the left stopped doing what they're doing and instead started talking in terms of truth and falsity, then we'd all be much better off. But Hollywood is incapable of doing that because they believe they are the sole purveyors of truth. Speaking of which, by the way, I just have to point this out. How is Nicole Kidman clapping here? Is it the, what in the world is, does, does she need a lesson in how to clap? I'm so confused. I thought the best theory came from Derek Hunter yesterday. He said that he thinks that her fingertips are polarized magnets and that she actually has no way of bringing her hands close together. That's a very weird clap there from Nicole Kidman. Very confused by that. Of course, the best moment of the night is when they picked the wrong winner. They had Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway come out there, and this was the worst ending for Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway since Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and, uh, and here is Warren Beatty screwing up the reading of the winner. And the Academy Award... <laughs> for Best Picture... You're it's not his fault, actually. La La Land. We lost, by the way, but, you know. Guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. 
Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. I wasn't trying to be funny. <laughs> well, you were funny. That Thank was you very funny. much. Thank yeah. you very much. Wow, this is... This um, is Moonlight, the best picture. Yeah. Okay, and Steve Harvey somewhere sits there and laughs and laughs. You remember when Steve Harvey screwed up the Miss Universe contest and announced the wrong winner? Uh, so, again, I, I love that they spend the entire night ripping on how Donald Trump is incompetent, and then they can't even announce the correct Best Picture winner. So that's pretty astonishing. Meanwhile, in actual serious news, the Democrats pick a new leader. Their new leader is a guy named Tom Perez. Tom Perez is a very, very radical fellow. It's funny because everybody is calling him a moderate. Tom Perez is not a moderate, this this guy who's the new leader over here. he is He's a very, very radical dude. And I want to give you some facts about him. He was Department of Labor Secretary under, under Barack Obama, and he was a big fan of what they call the disparate impact test, which is basically where you say that everything is racist just if it has racially disparate impact. So if there are more black people than white people in prison, for example, that must be racism just because there are more black people than white people in prison. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were big fans of Perez. They wanted him in as opposed to Keith Ellison. It was a very close race. A lot of people thought that it was kind of rigged, that Perez only won 235 votes out of 447. And that was on the second ballot. On the first ballot, he didn't have enough votes to actually win. Perez says he won't work with Trump. In fact, he immediately went out on the circuit and started talking about how the election was rigged. The, the Democratic Party has moved so far to the left so quickly that the only hope that they have here is to basically call Donald Trump illegitimate. They used this plan of attack on George W. Bush, and it was actually quite effective. This is how you end up with, with Nancy Pelosi as the head of the House in 2006 and Barack Obama president in 2008. So while we can laugh at them looking kind of incompetent and them looking like they're, they're sort of impotent at ripping on Trump, this is an actual part of a concerted strategy. Here's Perez on the news. Is that a signal to the, to the Senate and House Democrats? You can't work with President Trump no matter what he proposes. Well, he hasn't proposed anything but chaos and carnage. I mean, but from, he's talking about a trillion-dollar infrastructure proposal, well, but, something but, that Bernie Sanders has been talking about for a decade. We've seen no evidence, Chuck, of anything constructive from this president. Hours into his presidency, he made it harder for first-time homebuyers to buy a home. A few days later, he, make it, he, he tried to make it harder for people to save for retirement. He, he nominates someone to head the Labor Department who wants to gut overtime pay. You know, he, he is continually talking one way, but I judge people by their actions. Look at the, um, the ill-advised and, frankly, uh, racist executive action right. against uh, Muslims. He has governed from the far right in everything he's done. Okay, so uh, again, this is going to be the way the Democrats attack Trump all the way through. And this is going to be their point of, of coordination. It's funny, everybody is right now saying, oh, well, that, they're going to have to do more than that. It's about all they can do, because the truth is that the Democratic Party has a serious problem on its hands. There's part of the party that wants to move in a more socialist direction, a less intersectional, race-based direction. That's sort of the party led by Bernie Sanders. And then there's the Keith Ellison part of the party that, that is, that is race-based there is some coordination. I think that the gaps in the Democratic Party are a little bit overstated. Perez is is an attempt to sort of bridge the gaps because he's close with Obama, he's close with Hillary Clinton, but he's also far to the left. A lot of the gaps that are being exposed in the Democratic Party right now are not real, but they are. They, it, it's funny. I don't think they're they're over a lot of territory, but there's a lot of hard feeling nonetheless. Bernie Sanders, for example, he was not happy that Perez was appointed. He says the Democratic Party clearly is not working. Well, you saw uh, President Trump's tweet suggesting that uh, the system was rigged against Keith Ellison in the same way that the DNC system was rigged against you 
in the primaries, does he have a point? No, he doesn't have a point. That's what the system is. And one of the things that Tom is going to have to change is to figure out how we elect national democratic leaders. I'm not quite impressed with the process that now exists. Okay, and so th those fissures are not going to be bridged other than by opposition to Trump, which means that Trump actually has to put forward a really solid agenda, a popular agenda. So over the weekend, Trump spoke to the Governor's Association. He was speaking there last night during the Oscars. Jimmy Kimmel tweeted him. I thought it would have been really funny if, if Trump had tweeted back, you're doing a terrible job, sad, right? Just something. It would have been really funny, but he didn't do that. Instead, he was speaking to the governors, and here's what he had to say about Obamacare. And as most of you know, the Obamacare has had tremendous problems. I won't say in front of the Democrats, I'll just say it to the Republicans, it doesn't work. But we're gonna have it fixed and we're going to repeal and replace. And I think you're gonna see something very, very special. And for all of you, and even tonight, because we have Tom Price with us, uh, if you see something or wanna discuss it, we don't have to discuss all friendly stuff. We can discuss a little bit of the healthcare. We might as well start, but tomorrow morning we're gonna meet and have some pretty big sessions on health care and other things, whatever's on your mind. So I hear this is a record number of governors, 46, and that's the highest number that I've ever shown up for this evening. <laughs> but it's, I love that everything has to be a record number. Uh, uh, Trump's success is, is completely tied in with how many governors show up. But, who, but okay, so the question is, is Trump going to do good stuff or is he going to do bad stuff? So repeal and replace Obamacare. The problem is this. So they, they released their draft Obamacare plan uh, just on Friday. And it has some good stuff and it has some not such good stuff. And that's not unusual, unfortunately. Uh, so here are some of the stuff that is in the, in, the, in the Obamacare repeal plan that is being put forward by the House Republicans. Here's some of the good ideas. They're going to get rid of the individual mandate, so they're not going to make you pay for health care if you don't want to buy it. They're going to delay. They're, they're going to create the delayed death of Medicaid expansion. So right now, the federal government is basically pledging to expand Medicaid and pay for all the poor people in the states under Obamacare. That's been the in the main. The people who have joined Obamacare have done through so Medi through have done so through Medicaid, which is not actually buying insurance. It's actually just welfare. Basically, we're going to start. And walking that back a little bit. And they're relieving restrictions on age charging. So that means that the insurers can now charge you more if you're older, which makes sense since you're more of a liability risk if you are older. It dumps federal funding for abortion providers, which, which takes away the funding from Planned Parenthood. It grandfathers in old plans. So if you have a plan you like, you do actually get to keep it. And finally, it kills Obamacare taxes like the tanning bed tax. So those are all good things. Then there's some bad things. They want to pay for this by taxing Cadillac plans. So if you spend money to buy a really, really nice health care plan, they want to tax you on that. That's where the money is going to come from, which seems counterintuitive and silly. They want to create age-based subsidies. So instead of handing out income-based subsidies, so more money for poor people, and they want to give you a subsidy the older you get, which actually encourages young people not to get insurance and encourages older people to get insurance because someone else is paying for it. They want to create subsidies for high-risk pools. They want the federal government to provide $10 billion a year in state innovation grants, that is always likely to increase. Whenever you see a program that's designed like this, it always ends up being the federal government taking care of the bill. And finally, finally, they want to penalize lapses. So if you have an insurance program, you lose your insurance, and then you buy new insurance, you don't want to buy it right now, you buy it a year later, they want to pay you, make you pay an extra 30% premium to force you to buy health insurance. Again, is a lot of this free market-based some of it is, some of it isn't. It's not the greatest. Right now, the, the Republicans are having a very, very difficult time coming up with what exactly the repeal plan looks like for Obamacare, specifically because they're afraid of reaping the whirlwind. They're afraid that a lot of people will get thrown off their health insurance plans, and then they will feel the repercussions of that. And so they don't want to take the political risk. Listen, 
since 2010, they have been claiming they were willing to take the political risk. They were elected to the House in 2010 on this basis. They were elected to the House in 2014 and the Senate in 2014 on this basis. President Trump was elected on this basis. If they don't repeal and replace with something that is much more free market oriented, that will have been a massive failure and will demonstrate that Barack Obama and the Democrats always have the right idea when they enshrine these giant benefit programs that are very difficult to get rid of. Nancy Pelosi is basically daring Trump to do it. She's saying Trump has nothing to show for his presidency thus far. What has the Trump administration done from their inaugural address where they talked about decay and carnage? They've done nothing except put Wall Street first, make America sick again, and still fear in our immigrant population in our country, and make sure that Russia maintains its grip, its grip on our foreign policy. Okay, so the, so she's daring Trump to do this, basically. And so what we have right now is a bit of an impasse, because a lot of the stuff that Republicans want to do is apparently politically risky. A lot of the stuff the Democrats want to do, they can't. So what you have is a, is a world where the Democrats are going to make political hay by attacking Trump, and Trump is going to make political hay by attacking the media. And the media is starting to catch on to this little game. So Chris Wallace asked Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's campaign manager at one point, is still basically an advisor to Trump informally. Chris Wallace said to Corey Lewandowski, is it really going to do anything? Is it going to accomplish anything for you to attack the media? Fake news media knowingly doesn't tell the truth. A great danger to our country. He may be right on that or he may be wrong on it, Corey, but how many jobs does that create? And the answer is it doesn't create a lot of jobs, but it does create a lot of solidity behind President Trump. Now, it's important to note, you're looking at some of the polls right now that say that President Trump is not super popular. He's at like 44 percent popularity rating. Yes, and Nancy Pelosi's at negative 25. She's really underwater. Trump's like underwater by four. Pelosi's underwater by 25. So you do have to look at the comparative ratings. Trump is not wildly unpopular yet. Right? He's, he's not super popular for sure, but he's certainly not wildly unpopular. A lot of Americans are still optimistic here, but Trump's going to have to take some political risks at some point. I'm not sure what kind of political risks he's willing to take. I hope that he's willing to take the risks that are necessary to actually put the country back on good footing. Right now, he's making obvious and open that he doesn't want to change the entitlement programs if you don't change the entitlement programs, we're bankrupt. It's as simple as that. Meanwhile, he says he wants to blow out the infrastructure budget. He, he gave a little spiel this morning about how our roads and bridges are in bad shape, some of which is true, but that's really up to the states. It shouldn't be up to the federal government to fix roads and bridges that are inside particular states. He talked about how the Lincoln Tunnel, there are tiles falling off of it, and therefore people are getting killed by the falling tiles. Not sure if he has any data to back that up. In any case, he's talking about a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan that he seems much more enthusiastic about than what exactly this repeal and replace plan looks like. He pledged last two weeks ago. He said he was going to bring out a plan last week. That never happened. So, you know, let's let's hold the feet of the Republicans to the fire. And not just Trump. It's not just about Trump. The Republicans are going to, in Congress, are going to have to stop being part of a vestigial organ. Okay, basically, what we have right now is, is that the legislature has become a vestigial organ of American government. They don't do anything. They don't do anything. Trump passes executive orders and he talks a lot. And Paul Ryan sits there and cuts little videos that are cute about a better way for YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, and nothing happens. Has anything big happened in the last month from Congress? Nothing big has happened in the last month from Congress. In the end, Paul Ryan should be willing to take the hit for Trump. Listen, this was the, this was the deal he made. He should be willing to take the hit for Trump. He should be able to say, I'm passing this plan, and Trump's going to sign it, and if Trump doesn't sign it, I'll take the hit. 
But Paul Ryan was supposed to be the great, the hero we didn't we didn't want, but it was the hero that Gotham deserved. Okay, well now's the time for Paul Ryan to show what a hero he is by actually passing some legislation that does some damage to Obamacare and fixes the healthcare system, puts it along more free market lines. Because I've said before, it's going to be a transitional process. A lot of people have been made promises that cannot be fulfilled by this process. The problem is I don't see the Republicans making it a transitional process. I see them doing Obamacare light, and that's not a good thing in the end. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things I like. This week, we're going to do Best Picture winners that should have won, but didn't, right? So we're, we're going to talk about movies that should have won Best Picture, but didn't, sort of like this year, Arrival or 10 Cloverfield Lane, which wasn't even nominated, or Hell in High Water. Uh, they're, they're, La La Land was a better movie than Moonlight. So in 1948, the movie that won was Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. It's good. It's good, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's Olivier doing Hamlet, and that's good for what it is, but it's not something where you, you see it on TV and you have to watch it. It's not something that has really stood the test of time. In, in any major way. In fact, I think there are other, other Olivier performances that have stood the test of time in terms of Shakespeare better than this. There was a real fondness in the 1940s and 50s for British film from the American Academy because it was considered sophisticated. The best movie of that year was a movie called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. If you've never seen this movie, it is an actual classic with Humphrey Bogart. And it's not, it's Humphrey Bogart in a part that he really is, I think this is the best Humphrey Bogart part ever, is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's always been puzzling to me in Casablanca why Humphrey Bogart is the love interest. It makes no sense. Paul Henry is better looking. He's more honorable. Uh, he's, he's better to, Ingr- to Ingrid Bergman. It doesn't, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. But in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he plays this kind of sleazy grifter who ends up keeping company with these guys who are going to go find this, this gold. They're going to go find all of this gold that's been buried somewhere. And it's got a bunch of famous lines. Here's a little bit of the trailer from the original Treasure of the Sierra Madre. into the forbidding majesty of the great Madre range go men. Their pasts buried in silent secrecy. Their futures hidden in the mystery of adventure. Men drawn together in their search for gold. Dog, soldier of fortune. Howard, the old timer. Curtin, the youngster. And Cody, the intruder. These are the men who tried to tap the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Men with an oath on their lips and muscles in their arms but men with greed in their hearts, ready to break their backs, to sell their very souls for gold, fighting shoulder to shoulder against the forces of nature, only to find their greatest enemy is human nature. Shut your trap, shut up, or I'll smash your head flat. Oh, throw it. Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. Leave him alone. Can't you see it? The old man's nuts. <laughs> you're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> it's, it's a great movie. And, uh, and it's got a bunch of iconic performances. Uh, as I say... Uh, as I say, Bogart in this movie is terrific. Uh, the the other people who are in the movie, I think it's Walter Duranty. It's the old man who's dancing over there, and uh, he's terrific in the movie. It's a really iconic performance. It's got the line, the line everybody knows from this. Sorry, it's it's Walter Houston is who it is, not Walter Duranty. Walter Houston uh, is the, is the older guy in this film. Uh, the, the this is the one where the iconic line uh, badges. We don't need no stinking badges, right? That this that's 
from this movie. Uh, it's a great, great movie. It's an adventure film that really holds up in a major way and has a pretty moral message behind it. So check it out. Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Terrific film. Okay, other things that I like. So at the Oscars last night, I didn't hate everything. I do have a special love for celebrity mean tweets. I think they're really funny. As somebody who receives more hatred online than virtually anybody else I can name, <laughs> I think that it's really funny. They, they, they sort of treat mean tweets the way they should be tweeted. Uh, so here are some of the celebrity mean tweets from last night. I feel like if you went to lunch with Natalie Portman, she would only order a hot tea with lemon and maybe some toast. Definitely not an entree, though. You are wrong. Oh, look at me. I'm Ryan Gosling. I have perfect bone structure and kind eyes. Go f*** yourself, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> Samuel Jackson has resting fart face. Yes, I do. I'm going to white balance my TV on Jessica Chastain's chest. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Are we all just ignoring the fact that Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones have the same face? <laughs> Dear Eddie Redmayne, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You're the scum between my toes. Love to shen you. <laughs> Tanner raised his arms and my dad looks at his armpit hair and says, you look like you have Whoopi Goldberg in a headlock. <laughs> really? That's it? <laughs> Lynn manuel Miranda looks like he's getting a 1996 NBC sitcom with his haircut. <laughs> Casey Affleck is the real life version of Billy Bob Thornton's character in Sling Blade. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Stone looks like a crack whore in every role she plays. Great. Miles Teller has the face of a guy who would request Gangnam Style at a wedding where he doesn't know either the bride or groom. <laughs> Fair enough. Now's probably a good time to remind everyone about this dog that looks like Tilda Swinton. I think Jeff Bridges wears pants. A lot less than we all think he does. <laughs> oh, that's actually true. <laughs> Robert De Niro's too old to be making gangster movies still. Dude needs to start pl uh, playing grandfather roles or something. Yeah, I am playing grandfather roles. And pretty soon I'll be playing great-grandfather roles. <laughs> you. So a couple of those tweets are actually really, really clever. Uh, I love that stuff. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so... The story of the weekend is that Rachel Dolezal, you remember Rachel Dolezal, she was my favorite story of last year. I talked about her a fair bit last year because she was a fantastic story. She was the head of the local NAACP chapter talking about white privilege, and it turns out she was a white lady. And she said she was black while holding a leadership position with the local NAACP. And then she was exposed, and uh, now it turns out that she is, uh, she is homeless. So she, uh, according to The Guardian, today Dolezal is jobless and feeding her family with food stamps. Awesome. A friend helped her pay this month's rent. Next month she expects to be homeless. She has applied for more than 100 jobs. No one will hire her, not even to stack supermarket shelves. She applied for a position at the university where she used to teach. Says she was interviewed by former colleagues who pretended to have no recollection of having met her. The only work she has been offered is reality TV and porn. She has changed her name on all her legal documents, but is still recognized wherever she goes. People point at her and laugh. She wrote a memoir, but it was rejected by 30 publishers before finally being picked up. And she said that the narrative was that I had offended both communities in an unforgivable way. And she said... Uh, 
She's perceived as a liar and a fraud and a con. The reason this is under stuff I hate and not stuff I like is for two reasons. One, I think that it is amazing that the country will give everybody a second chance, except for the lady who said that she was black. Second of all, if she had... Okay, let's put it this way. White woman says she's a black woman, but is actually a white woman. She loses her job. She loses her career. She's seen as a crazy person. No one will hire her. She's homeless and on food stamps. If a white woman said she was a black man or a white man, then we presumably say she's a hero and we give her a reality TV show and we say that she actually is a man, right? So if she said, if Rachel Dolezal had, instead of saying she was a black woman, said that she was a white man, we would all have said, you know what? She is the greatest hero of our lifetimes. She is just somebody we ought to honor. Every day we ought to honor Rachel Dolezal because she is a hero. Not only is she a hero, she's a he. She's a he. But if she says she's black, then that we can't take seriously because, come on, that's silly. It's just silly for her to say she's black, but it's totally not silly for her to say she's a man. This is ridiculous in a wide variety of ways. Men and women are much more genetically different than black people and white people. A race is far more malleable genetically, and the boundaries are far fuzzier genetically than the boundaries between male and female. And yet, as a society, we have decided that if a man is now a woman, then he ought to be treated as a woman. And if a woman says she's a man, then she ought to be treated as a man. But if a white person says he's a black person or a black person says he's a white person, that's crazy and out of their mind. And she must be a nut job, put her on food stamps and homelessness. Okay, that just demonstrates the sickness that has pervaded our culture, because that's really stupid, and it's really, it's really messed up. Right? She's being called a nut job. Meanwhile, a transgender boy, right, meaning a girl who thinks she's a boy down in Texas, has been taking testosterone because she wants to become a boy, which she can't because she's a girl, and then wrestling the other girls, and she won the state title in wrestling because she's a girl who's on hormones. She's on testosterone. She's basically taking steroids. So a girl taking steroids wins the state title in wrestling, and the left declares her a hero. But if she had had presumably melanin injections and then said she was a black woman, we would have said that she's a crazy person, and we would have destroyed her career in life. All of which demonstrates there is no logic to the left whatsoever. It's all made up. It's all silly. It's all based on a d deep desire to maintain boundaries of race so that you can divide race from race, but also to get rid of all distinctions between male and female because those are not useful to their game, which is to claim that male and female are exactly the same for all intents and purposes, and therefore any sort of disparity between men and women must be created by societal discrimination. Right? That's the purpose of all that. Okay, final thing that I hate. David Brooks is considered by some people a conservative. I don't understand why he... He's the New York Times in-house conservative along with Ross Dudhat, and, uh, and he is now talking about how the Democratic Party is the specialist party in the entire world. Again, if you feel this way, then just become a Democrat, David. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had a pretty clear line. Ronald Reagan had a pretty clear line. People who rescue parties, and it doesn't have to be the same line that we've had for the last 40 years because that clearly isn't working on any level. But you've got to have a pretty clear line on this crucial issue. Is the global capitalism basically to support it or is it to be opposed? Is the international world order to be supported or is it to be opposed? Republicans have taken a very clear line. Democrats can have a different version of that line or they can go say, no, we're the party of international peace and activism and we're the party that's gonna have a civilized capitalism. Okay, so again, I think that this is a bizarre take on the Democrats who have made very clear they're not in favor of international capitalism. In fact, most of their program is about how capitalism sucks and they wanna defeat it. And as far as the international order, I'm 
looking for the part, or the part where it says that the international order has to be done through the UN and requires delegation of power and weakening of America on every front. If David Brooks feels this way, he ought to become a Democrat. It's really silly. Okay, quick correction, then we'll go. Quick correction. There were three pictures nominated for Best Picture that made over $100 million, which, by the way, is not a huge amount of money for a big picture anymore. Arrival made just over $100 million. La La Land ended up at $141 million. And Hidden Figures, which I haven't seen, is at $153 million. None of those is like a massive blockbuster, but those are the, the, the three biggest earners of the year. Obviously, none of those won. The one that won was was Moonlight, which I think grossed $26 million or something. Okay, so we'll be back tomorrow, and tomorrow we'll be preparing for Donald Trump's State of the Union address. I hate the State of the Union address in general, so I'll have a lot to say about just the State of the Union address as an institution, and we'll also get to what Trump will say and what he should say. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.